Welcome to Belief Beat, where we talk about things that matter with people who matter. We have a very special presentation this week that was recorded at our adult forum at Unity Lutheran Church, uh, done on Zoom on January 31st, 2021. Our guest at that forum uh, was Mary Beth Graham, who's an internal medicine doctor who specializes in infectious disease. And Mary Beth is the medical director for infection prevention and control at Freighted Hospital here in the Milwaukee area. She's also uh, the director of the infectious disease residency program at the Medical College of Wisconsin. And most notably, she's a member uh, here at Unity Lutheran Church. And we're really uh, so happy to have Mary Beth uh, with us today on as a part of this podcast and for her time and expertise on something that's so important because the topic today is all things COVID-19. Where did it come from? How does it spread? How do we treat it? How do we prevent it? And what's the status of all things related uh, to the vaccine? So that was uh, Mary, Mary Best's topic uh, at that forum. Um, uh, we had a little recording glitch at the beginning of that, and so we missed the first probably 10 minutes of her presentation. And so I'm going to briefly summarize that for you. Uh, I would also reference you, if you are able to be at our website in proximity to where the podcast is located, you, you'll also find Mary Beth's slideshow. She had a, uh, about 30 slides that she shared as a part of this presentation. And uh, when she starts speaking, uh, you'll pick it up at slide eight. And I will do a brief summary of what she said on slides two through seven, the part that our recording did not capture. Fortunately, that was kind of the preliminary stuff. And, and, and so I think the, the really best stuff is the stuff we captured, including uh, lots of questions that people asked on the Zoom chat, uh, which Mary Beth was able to respond to uh, towards the end of the presentation. So I think you will appreciate all of it, and I think you'll appreciate both the attention to detail and Mary Beth's attention just to, to how we live our regular lives in these difficult times. With that in mind, if you were able to be looking at the slideshow, and even if you're not, let me just kind of quickly encapsulate what Mary Beth said at the beginning of her presentation. She explained that COVID-19 is just an acronym for Coronavirus Disease of 2019, and it's part of the coronavirus SARS family, which are respiratory infections that are spread by airborne droplets. Um, perhaps you would remember a SARS outbreak in China in 2003 or a related MERS outbreak in 2012 in the Middle East. On her third slide, uh, Mary Beth showed a global distribution of the disease. Uh, at this point, as of January 31st, there had been 102 million cases worldwide with about 2.2 million deaths. Uh, on her fourth slide, she talked about how the disease spreads like other respiratory diseases. The virus itself uh, floats on respiratory uh, water droplets, essentially. And that's where the original recommendation to stay, stay six feet apart came from. Uh, with other diseases, the droplets tend to drop to the ground in about six feet. The thing with the COVID-19 virus is that it can remain viable on smaller particles, and so it can remain airborne longer, so beyond six feet. And something that, that in a sense, vigorously projects um, 
air from your mouth. So singing, coughing, yelling, uh, all of those things can project uh, the virus uh, significantly further than uh, six feet. That led Mary Beth to talk about masks. She was very careful to point out that early on, when we didn't know what we know now, some of the early advice was that, that masks were not recommended. Uh, but we quickly learned that masks are actually uh, highly effective in, in protecting uh, um, uh, people who uh, might not have the disease uh, as well as, um, well, just protecting everybody. I won't go into all of the detail on that. And actually, if you're able to look at the slide, she, slide six has kind of an interesting demonstration of what she's talking about. But uh, masks are super effective. And uh, one of the questions she said people ask a lot is, well, it's a, it's a virus, so it's really small. Who's going to have a, a mask that can block that? Uh, but she pointed out, you don't really have to be able to block the virus. The virus has to be riding on something, it has to be riding on some sort of small water droplet. And so that's what your mask needs to be able to stop. Um, on her seventh slide, she just kind of summarized then the early part of her presentation, which was distancing remains really important. Uh, six feet uh, or further is important. Wearing a mask is really important. And then just as you make decisions about what you do in, in your daily life, it's, it's always a matter of, of assessing uh, where you're going. Um, is the disease um, more common there if you're traveling? Will you be taking it from a more common area? Uh, how will you travel? Uh, Mary Beth talked about being pretty, pretty comfortable actually with air travel due to the uh, filtration systems on airplanes. Uh, other forms of travel, you, you really want to be wearing a, a mask. And, and just limit your number of gatherings and how many people are at those gatherings. That would be her slide seven. Now I am going to stop talking and we're going to pick up Mary Beth on her slide eight. Uh, as she begins uh, talking about other mitigation steps and then moves on to all those other topics that I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast. I, if you're able to watch the slideshow, I think that will help. But if you're just listening to this as you normally would to a podcast, uh, she explains her slides really effectively and uh, you will get as much out of it uh, or nearly as much out of it, I would say, by simply listening as you would with the slides. Uh, the slides are just a nice visual addendum if you're able to see them. So with that, I will now turn it over to Mary Beth. Hand hygiene anytime before you touch your face, that's the important thing. When we're in the summertime, when we can open up the winds, uh, open up the windows and turn on ceiling fans, those are always important things for air circulation. One of the things we have recommended for, um, even here at, at our hospital, but uh, one of my colleagues worked with a number of long-term care facilities in the area is working with them to put HEPA filters into their congregate areas. And so in the times when you can't, if they don't have the same type of air handling system that we have in the hospital, we have HEPA filtration, our air turnovers, at least air, six air exchanges per hour. Um, a colleague of mine did a study where she had a fancy gun type machine that sucked in the air 
um, that was around a person. So she took it into a, a room of a person who had um, COVID and there's a filter on it and they could never get virus off of that filter. But she took it to the home and gave it to a colleague of ours whose whole family had um, COVID. They took it into their house and then they brought it back and you could culture virus all over the filter. So the issue is in the hospital, our air handling systems are much different than what they are in homes. So anything that you can do to keep air moving is good. Um, there are a number of different air filters that have been, I, I'll be honest, I bought two. I have one that's on my main floor, by, actually three. I have one in our bedroom, I have one on our main floor of our house, and I have another one um, in our basement. Um, just because, again, I thought it was the right thing to do. And luckily, the two that I bought for upstairs in the basement were on sale um, on Amazon on those Black Friday sales. So I was able to pick them up for half price. And I was very excited because they're not cheap. I mean, I'll just be honest, they're not cheap. Um, I have one that's called an Allen, A-L-E-N, um, air cleaner that I have on the main floor of the house um, that covers quite a number of square feet, but it's $800 for this thing. So again, it, it's not a small purchase. But again, these are, they can be for certain situations and especially if you have people who potentially have risk um, or you can't do that air circulation, thinking about HEPA filters in your house is a good thing. Um, that link there is essentially an EPA website that talks about different types of air cleaners that can be used in different homes. So let's go on to next about testing. So I get a lot of questions about testing for COVID. So when you go to get tested or people are getting tested, what actually is being done? So there are two main tests that are done out there. So the one that we use, pretty much the only one we use at Frederick Medical College is the molecular test, the reverse transcriptase PCR, so the RT-PCR. It's a nasal or throat swab. Um, for our hospital, because it's done in-house, the turnaround time is about six to eight hours. Um, it is essentially, it is very sensitive when it, you're um, symptomatic and also retains some symptomatic, even uh, some sensitivity, even if somebody is asymptomatic. So um, what's interesting about this though, is this looks for genome of the virus and it can remain positive for a long time. So after somebody's had COVID, and people would get this one over and over again, it can remain positive for weeks to months because it could be dead virus. It can be dead non-replicating virus. And so the CDC essentially said at the end, don't use this to clear people from isolation. It's not synonymous with active infection. So then what a lot of people have used is the antigen test. So the antigen test works a bit differently. It still is a nasal throat swab or spit that people use. It's back in one hour. And this is what they're using on College campuses, it's what they're using um, to, to test uh, professional athletes every other day, et cetera. Um, it, again, it's a rapid test. The biggest problem with this one is if you are asymptomatic, it has much lower sensitivity. If you are symptomatic and it's positive, so if it's positive, I believe it's positive. If you're symptomatic, it's, it has a much better chance of being positive. But if somebody does not have any symptoms, it has much lower sensitivity than the PCR test that's being done. So again, just because somebody tests negative with an antigen test isn't a free reign to say, oh, I can do anything that I want to do. It's what we're trying to explain to people. The antibody test 
essentially is something that's done that says, have I had the virus? Now, the thing that's important about the antibody test, it measures for antibodies to a certain part of the virus called nucleocapsid. It's one of the proteins that sit on the top of the virus. I've had a number of my colleagues say, well, can I, I have a patient who's a transplant, they got their vaccine, can I do the antibody test to see how well they responded to the vaccine? And I said, no. And they said, well, why not? And I said, because their uh, vaccine gives them antibodies to spike protein, which isn't recognized by the antibody test. So nobody should be going out there asking for an antibody test to see if their vaccine worked because it doesn't measure the same thing. So again, the antibody test is a measure if you've actually had the virus, it looks for a different part of the virus. If you've been vaccinated, the antibody test is worthless. Um, again, what they know with the antibody test is that it, you know, they, they tried to look at studies to say, okay, with the antibody test, how long does it last positive? And so what's been published is people who had very, very minor illnesses, um, probably their antibody titers wane within about three to four months. If they have more significant illness, their antibodies can remain positive for six to eight months. I mean, but again, we don't know how long because we're only about a year plus into this disease. So in terms of how long, you know, what, what can we actually say about it? That's yet uh, to be said, but the antibody is not an indication whether somebody's infectious or not. So I just, you know, the utility of an antibody test for me, I only use it in the hospital. We use it as a parameter for some of the treatments that we give people. Um, otherwise, I don't see a main reason to use an antibody test. I've had other people say they want an antibody test so that they um, can travel. I don't know with the, with, because again, because it doesn't indicate whether somebody is infectious or not. Um, my understanding is that the to get back into the United, if you leave the United States, and this just happened right at the end of January, you need to have a COVID test before you re-enter the United States. It'll either be the molecular or the antigen test if you travel outside the US. So that's another thing to think about travel is, are you going to have access to getting a test within 72 hours of returning to the US? Because if you do not have that test, it's like, eh -eh, you're not getting in here. So let's talk about the disease. So. The symptoms range from asymptomatic to very, very mild symptoms to actually severe disease. And I would say that a huge preponderance of individuals have mild symptoms, don't require hospitalization, or were found to be positive and they, were, they felt that they were asymptomatic. Um, the symptoms usually occur about two to 14 days after exposure to the virus. The typical symptoms, if somebody does develop symptoms, one of the most common ones is fever and chills. Some people will have cough or shortness of breath, muscle ache fatigue, again, similar things to what you can see with other types of respiratory viruses. The one symptom that is very specific for COVID, um, which is different, is the loss of sense of taste and smell, um, which, is, which is quite unique. Um, and it sometimes isn't a loss, it can be a, a perturbation, so basically an alteration. So I've had people say everything smells like ammonia or things smell like this. So it's not that they lost their sense of taste and smell, it's, it's just totally screwed up and everything smells weird. So sulfur is a common one, ammonia smell is a common one that I've heard from individuals. That can last for a fairly long time. But again, 
for myself as an infectious disease physician, what worries me about that is the only way that the virus can affect that is if it actually has penetration into the brain to the part of the olfactory system in the brain. So you have to think about it. Um, this virus gets all over the body and can have some very, very interesting effects against multiple parts of the body, not just the lungs. Um, so nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, also a very common thing that we have seen with some of our hospitalized patients. That's not a common thing with influenza uh, in adults, but can occur in kids with flu. So if we look at the spectrum of the disease, there's usually three different phases. And there's usually the early phase that may not go on to the pulmonary. So again, these are phases that may go into each other or they may just peter out. So in the early phase, essentially it's within that first seven days after the onset of symptoms, those are due to the virus itself. And this is where anti, basically drugs or medications or treatments that are specifically going against the virus can be beneficial, but they need to be given very, very early on. In the outpatient setting, the thing that we use in the outpatient setting are the monoclonal antibodies. And there are currently two monoclonal antibodies that are available. Um, they are available under what's called an EUA, an emergency use authorization through the FDA. They are not FDA approved per se, but they are available and, and the FDA says, yes, you can go ahead and give these. Most institutions across, you know, pretty much everywhere in the United States has access to these, to these medications. There are allotments given to the states and the states sent them out to different hospitals all around the state. The most important thing with convalescent antibodies, people don't think about it. So I recently was called by, um, by an individual who was letting me know about their father who was 87 years old, who had just tested positive for COVID. Um, and I was asking, do they have any symptoms? And they, they were like, well, no, they don't have a fever. I said, do they have any symptoms? Well, a little stuffy nose and, a, and some congestion. I said, fine we've got to get them the monoclonal antibody because for people over the age of 65, for people with a high BMI greater than 35, for patients with certain comorbidities like heart disease, lung disease, et cetera, those are people who are at highest risk for progression of disease. And so if you fit those categories of those risk factors for progression and you are early on and you just test positive, contact your provider as soon as possible to talk to them about getting treatment with the monoclonal antibody. So essentially the monoclonal antibodies are essentially because at the time that you are early on in infection, your body doesn't know how to fight the virus. And a monoclonal antibody is essentially a, it's giving similar to the antibodies your body will eventually make to glom onto the virus and prevent the virus from causing more damage. So monoclonal antibodies, very, very important. Again, most people don't think about it. And when we've had people admitted, we've said, well, you know, you've been sitting at home for the last seven days. Did you talk to your doc? And, and there are many providers who aren't thinking about that. So we are really trying to stress that for people in the community and for our providers in the community, if you have people who are at potentially high risk of progressing, to consider that because that is one of our best treatments. Um, that's really our only treatment that would potentially prevent hospitalization or progression of disease is by giving the monoclonals. They're given intravenously. It goes in over about an hour. Um, and so I'm a huge proponent of those, but again, they have to be given early on. They're only approved for treatment in the outpatient setting at this time. Once somebody gets into the hospital, if they're very, very early on, I did a consult on a patient yesterday who's brand new COVID, 
Um, and I started them on remdesivir and gave them convalescent plasma. So remdesivir is a direct antiviral medication. Um, it's intravenous. It's only available on the inpatient side. It's a five-day treatment. And then convalescent plasma essentially is liquid part of the blood that we get from people who've recovered from COVID. And in that liquid part of the blood are antibodies, plus a lot of other cool stuff. I mean, plasma is really interesting and there might be other cytokines, there might be other factors. We think plasma kind of gives a number of other potential benefits to help fight off the virus. But again, it has to be given very, very early on. When somebody is further beyond that very, that seven plus day time frame, none of these medicines work anymore that go against the virus because that next phase, and I call it the seven to 10 day cliff, is it's turning into an inflammatory response where your body essentially is turned on all these inflammatories and I can give you every antiviral in the world and it's not gonna do anything. So at this point in time, your body has been revved up, it's going crazy, and this is where we're given steroids. So we're given steroids, there are other types of medications that are out there um, in terms of, they're called anti-cytokine therapies, et cetera. These are the more scary times for us as providers because we're trying to figure out how to dampen down that immune response that's occurring. And then there can be, it can go on to develop what's called a hyperinflammation um, stage where we have seen some patients, they can then progress um, where they get such inflammation in their lungs. I've had a couple of patients who've developed progressive pulmonary fibrosis after having had COVID. We've had people developing other types of syndromes after COVID. So again, I can't stress enough that if you know somebody who's early on who has uh, risk factors, you know, they're like, oh yeah, I just, it's like a mild cold. But if they have any of those risk factors, you know, talk to them potentially about getting early treatment because we don't want to see them in the hospital. I mean, that's our key is I don't want them in the hospital. So long-term effects, as I mentioned, um, again, the vast majority of people who get um, COVID recover without any sequela. A number of people will have lingering fatigue. That's, that's just a universal comment I've heard. Cough, a feeling of shortness of breath, um, this foggy brain, mood alterations, joint pain, chronic headaches. I mean, we've seen all of this. So we've actually developed a, um, and many institutions have done this, is we've gone together a number of physicians. There's a post-COVID or COVID survivors clinic that's being developed here at uh, Freighter and Medical College. For me, I don't have much to offer as an infectious disease person because none of this is related, none of this is related to the infection anymore. There's, there's nothing I have to offer at this point in time, but we have pulmonologists, we have psychiatrists, we have cardiologists, we have pulmonologists. We have a huge number of people who are involved in this post-COVID um, clinic. Uh, because again, we can see patients who developed um, cardiomyopathies or damage to the heart muscle. We've seen the pulmonary fibrosis patients. We've seen strokes after COVID. Um, and then the other thing we've seen a number of patients with pulmonary embolism and getting DVTs. So again, prevention, I can't stress enough. We don't have to deal with these if we can do the prevention or treat people early. Just so that you guys know what the difference is. A lot of people ask, you know, what's the difference between quarantine and isolation? Um, quarantine essentially is what we do if you've been exposed. So it's to keep you away from others. So it's basically keep somebody who may have been exposed to the virus away from others, because then if you become ill, you're not spreading it to others. The current recommendations for quarantine um, are quarantine for 10 days if you don't get tested, or seven days if you get a negative test on day five or later. Um, but 
CDC is very clear saying, even if you are no longer quarantining after seven days, there's still about a 20% chance you could spread this to somebody. Um, and that you still need to do everything about masking and social distancing, et cetera. Isolation essentially is for somebody who's been infected with the virus. Um, if it's a person with a normal immune system, isolation, the public health department will let somebody out of isolation um, 10 days after their onset of symptoms or if they are, and that has to be somebody who has recovered and then they're not having a fever, so they basically are fever-free without the use of fever-reducing uh, medications, and their symptoms need to be better. If people are, have, um, just one second, Pat, what is it? Okay, I'll find you after this, sorry. Um, so, um, so our, what the um, CDC also recommends is for immunocompromised patients, it's a bit longer, it's about 20 days for isolation. So there may be something different, but public health usually drives that and will let people know when they can come out. So a little bit about vaccination, how do vaccinations work? And, and the vaccines, you know, we do for a lot of different um, organisms that we want to be protected from. Essentially, the idea is using a dead germ or part of the germ or something about the germ um, to give it to somebody so that it sparks your immune system to develop antibodies and remember that particular um, germ and then fight it off. So the most important thing for vaccination, if we look at, we always talk about R0, is about how common is it if you have been infected some, with something that you can infect somebody else. So if we look at, so down here, when it talks about how a virus is spread, if, if the R0 is two, then if patient zero, you can infect two, then two infects four, then four infects eight, et cetera. This is how this goes on. If we look at COVID-19 versus influenza, essentially it is much more infectious and spreads much more easily than influenza. The R0 for influenza is about one to one and a half. The R0 for COVID is two to two and a half. So essentially you're going to infect more people with COVID than you will with regular influenza. Actually, the R0 is higher than it was with Ebola. Um, but um, again, it's much more infectious than what we have. Now, this is the regular COVID-19. So the concern is right now with some of the variants, and I'll talk about the variants, is that this R0 is higher. The R0 may be in that three to four range. Um, if we look at types of vaccines that all of us have gotten over time, there are a lot of different types of vaccines that are out there. You all have gotten some of these. You've got your MMRs, et cetera, when you were younger. You got your influenza shot, which is inactivated. Hopefully many of you got either your shingles vaccine or hepatitis B vaccines, which are subunits, or your tetanus shot, which are, tet of which are toxoids. So the point is, is that when they came to making vaccines for, um, for COVID, um, the they had to look at different types of vectors. So on the right here, it talks about the array of vaccines. So again, like an influenza virus with an inactivated or weakened vaccine, there are only a few vaccine candidates that are out there looking at that as even an option, and those are being done in China. The vast majority of the vaccines that are being developed around the world are the viral vector replicated or non-replicating. And those are like the Johnson & Johnson and AstraZeneca vaccines. Those are adenovirus vaccine vectors. The DNA RNA vectors here are what the Moderna and Pfizer, the currently available vaccines are. And then there are a number of companies working on protein-based. Um, there is a company that is in, um, 
in the US that's working on a protein base. But again, the ones that we have the mRNA vaccines right now available, the next ones that come are gonna be adenovirus protein-based vaccines will be after that. And the whole point is the key thing to all of these vaccines is we want to develop an antibody response. And the main antibody response that we want these vaccines to elicit is to a surface protein on that virus called the spike protein. Why is the spike protein important? Viruses can't do anything unless they get inside your cell. And the viruses have to recognize something on your cell surface to get inside the cell and make more of itself. Viruses just don't replicate on their own, like in the air or any place else like that. They have to get into a cell, whether it's an animal cell, a human cell, whatever. But the spike protein binds to a, a normal receptor that's present on respiratory epithelia called an ACE2 receptor. So essentially, if you make an antibody that will block that connection between the spike protein and the ACE2, you essentially are blocking that infection from getting in. You're blocking that virus from getting in. So that's the whole concept behind doing vaccination. And again, all of the vaccines that we have right now are very much focused on making an antibody to spike protein. For the RNA vaccines, and this again are the Moderna and Pfizer, these are vaccines that essentially RNA, essentially mRNA, messenger RNA is just exactly what it sounds like. It's a message. It gets into essentially once it's injected and it goes in, they've got it in a lipid envelope. So again, these are very, very um, easily degraded um, um, nucleic and basically nuclear material. mRNA is very, very easily um, degraded. So they have it in a lipid envelope. This is why these temperatures that the way that they had to make them in these lipid envelopes and then the minus 70 freezer and the minus 20 freezer, it's because these are very easy to degrade. So you have to make them in a certain way. So this is why there's all these problems in terms of transport and keeping them um, so that they'll be active. But essentially, once this mRNA goes in, in our normal cells, we have these things called ribosomes, it just gets read. So it reads it, and then what your body does is it reads it like it would any other mRNA, and then you make spike protein. And then spike protein essentially goes out and your body says, what the heck is this? I don't know what this thing is. I don't, this isn't me. And so then your body does what your body does. Our body is fabulous about what's called antigen processing and presentation. And essentially it sees a spike protein and says, you're not supposed to be there. And then it stimulates your body to make this whole big immune response to go after it. And so then you're making antibodies to go after it. You're making what's called cell mediated immune responses to go after it. The thing that is important though, is people have said, will this alter my DNA? mRNA doesn't go into the nucleus. It doesn't alter your DNA. It doesn't get in there. There are DNA vaccines that some people are looking at. Those do need to go in and incorporate into your cell, but the mRNA uh, vaccines do not incorporate. They don't go in. They're not going to change your genetic makeup. There are some major uh, you know, pros of these. So if we look at, they're incredibly potent. Um, they have the capacity for rapid development. They have the potential for low-cost manufacture and safe administration. They're non-infectious. They don't integrate. Um, they don't essentially, um, it's no potential risk for infection or insertional mutagenesis. Essentially, it's not going to get into you. And then as with the adenovirus vaccines that I'll talk about in a second, there's no chance that you could be, make an antibody against the vector because it's just in lipid. The major issue when these came to light, which concerned people, is before these two, 
there were no approved DNA RNA vaccines for medical use in humans. These are the very first. And these are on EUA. So these are on emergency use authorization. So these have not yet gone through full FDA approval. But again, we're using them. It's the, we all feel that they're very safe to do. The key issue is the stability of the mRNA. Again, mRNA can break down incredibly easily. That's again why the storage issues are, are there. So in big hospital settings like Freighter, we're using Pfizer because we have the freezers that go to minus 70. In the communities, they are using Moderna because they would have the minus 20 freezers. They really don't have the minus 70 freezers to be able to handle this. But the efficacy and the outcomes from both of the vaccines is essentially the same. So if we look at vector-based vaccines, because these are the next ones that are coming out and that you're going to be hearing about, um, essentially, these are adenovirus vaccines, and these are right here, this non-replicating virus vaccines. So they essentially put spike protein into this adenovirus, and it essentially goes into you, and then it will essentially make, again, the spike protein, your body recognizes it and says, what is this? And it does exactly the same thing to make um, an antibody against it. Adenovirus vaccines, again, there's a lot of good things about them. Um, they really are good at inducing cellular immune responses. Usually a single dose is, is good enough. So that's one of the major effects because you think about mass vaccination, getting a vaccine out that you can just give once is much better than having to have somebody come back in 21 days for Pfizer and 28 days for Moderna. Um, it's a highly specific delivery of the antigen. And these have been proven safe. These have been used in a lot of different scenarios. So they've been used in gene therapy. They've been used in other types of um, vaccine development. They're relatively simple to take. And down the line, they may be able to be delivered in other routes. Rather than getting a shot, you may be able to get them aerosolized, orally, et cetera. So there's a lot of different ways to get them. The biggest problems with these adenoviral vaccines is that adenoviruses are normal circulating viruses in the community. So if you have already had an adenovirus infection, you may already have antibodies against adenovirus and therefore you won't, you'll be fighting off the adenovirus and the adenovirus can't do its job to make you be responding to the spike protein. So one of the two most common adenoviruses that used to be used for vaccines were adenovirus 5 and adenovirus 26. And if you look at these, there's about 38% of people in North America who already have antibodies against it for adenovirus 26. It's about 10% of people in North America, but up to 68% in Africa. Again, we need vaccines that can be used worldwide. So these may not work as well. The chimp um, adenovirus is the one that is being used by AstraZeneca. And essentially less than 1% of the world's population has antibodies to this. So that's one of the reasons why that one was chosen. And so that they again think that if they use that one, there's going to be much less chance that somebody's going to have an antibody against the vector so that then when the vector goes in, your body can go ahead and make that normal immune response. Hey, Mary, so, hey, Mary yeah. Beth. I'm just noticing on our chat that we're getting kind of a, a lot of questions. Um, do you want to present a little bit more and then we'll deal with questions? Or do you want to take a few questions and then uh, wrap up presenting? Um, How do you I want to proceed? questions now. That's fine. Okay. Um, I'll, I'll just, I don't know if you can see the chat, uh, but I can just read them to you and you can kind yeah, of- Yeah, read them because otherwise, let me just- Yeah, you'll lose your thing. So here's the first one. Uh, I had my son uh, on January 15th. Uh, this is from uh, Michaela, so congratulations. Uh, 
And I'm currently very nervous about visitors in our home. Based on your knowledge of the situation, what would your advice be for our family? So again, it's, it's know your pod. It's know your people. So um, people that you know have either been doing their isolating or have been tested, et cetera. I, I personally, if I had a newborn in the house, this is because my, this is what my son and daughter-in-law did. I was tested before I went out there to see my granddaughter. So I got a test before I went and knew that I had been, you know, what I've been doing at work. So I would very much, you know, recommend, you know, uh, casual visitors. No, I'm sorry. I, I just wouldn't do that. But again, know your pod, people getting tested before they come in, making sure that people have been following, again, all the good social distancing and all those good things. Cool. Uh, next question. So we've got about eight right now. So this is number two. What if someone I don't know is sitting right next to me on a plane? We're both wearing masks, obviously. Should I be worried? Um, no. I mean, you know, the, the issue is, is that I, if, if they're hacking and coughing into their mask, I, yes, I, any, anybody would be worried in that situation. But in general, just with the mask on, with normal breathing and somebody doing this without talking, it's, you're not, you don't need to worry about anything. Now, again, if somebody's yelling through their mask, if somebody is coughing and hacking through that, then potentially, you know, you could worry about something. But I, having been on a couple of flights, um, it's very quiet on the plane. It's incredibly, it's incredibly quiet. I think everybody's nervous about talking or, or doing anything. Interesting. That's kind of a nice, that's kind of a nice improvement, actually. Yeah, I, I actually read um, an entire, on the to and from on my Kindle, I read an entire novel, too, and then I read another one coming back. Wow. Fridge benefits. Uh, next question, is exercising in a gym in a class with all people wearing masks too risky for someone who is 65 years old and healthy. So exercising in a, in a gym, in a class, everybody's wearing masks. Uh, I wouldn't do 65. it. I wouldn't do it. I just wouldn't. I, I dropped my membership to my gym. I honestly could not, I did not feel safe. Some people feel safe doing it. It's a personal decision, but I personally could not do it. Um, it's it's one of those things where breathing heavily even with the mask on etc and hopefully the people who are coming aren't having symptoms but you can have people who are asymptomatic and there is potential for spread it has to be a personal decision um and so there are times for a lot of gyms that have they can be more spaced out or choosing your time when there are fewer people there because a lot of the gyms now have a time tracker so you look and see when the fewest numbers of people are there and then choose those times. So if you have the, the, for me, I did not have the luxury of that with my work. It's like, there's only certain times I can go. And so if I could choose a time to go when there are very, very few people there, then I would feel comfortable with it. If there's a large number of people, I, I, I personally would not feel comfortable doing that still at this point in time. Community spread in this area is still, I mean, we're down, we're down, but we're still at about seven or 8% positivity in the community. So, and we'd like to see it back down to like the, you know, we, we'd like to see it zero. But again, I, I definitely would want it less than, you know, 2%, less than 2 to 3% would be great. Less than 5% would be good. Less than 2 to 3% would be great. Okay. That's, that's good numbers to know. Um, 
this is kind of a broader one, but maybe you can speak to it a little bit. Uh, why can't the U.S. do what countries like Taiwan are doing to control the spread of COVID? And that would, I guess, uh, the person who asked that could maybe tell us a little bit what Taiwan is doing, but I don't know how familiar you are with what so, other- So, I mean, if you look at different, so, so there, I, there's, I'm gonna just have multiple, I have multiple different responses to this. Um, okay. So, I mean, and China's made a big deal out of how that they, they shut, I mean, but they, they basically shut down, I mean, they shut down everything. People were locked in their homes for, I think it was something like, it was something like 15 weeks or something. I mean, it was, it was, it was uh, a, a very, very long time. Um, and I also don't believe the data, all the data coming out of China. I'm just being honest. I, I, I don't think many of us in the medical world believe most of the stuff coming out. Most of the literature that we get out of there, we just ignore because a lot of it is not relevant to what we're seeing. Um, I apologize, but it's just, it, it, that's, that's the hey. question. Um, the, what we see, what's interesting in the U.S. is similar to what they're seeing in Europe, what you're seeing elsewhere. Um, is it a difference between a Western civilization and other civilizations where you have people are more likely to follow, you know, recommendations versus others? I mean, you, we're still arguing about masks in this country. We've been through this for a year and people are still arguing about masks. We're still having people who are arguing about going to bar, you know, about opening up all the restaurants. And the restaurants I don't have as much a problem with. It's the bars that bother me because, again, it's usually you sometimes won't think as straight and you're closer together and a lot more people. And so um, th those, I mean, it's, it's worrisome. Again, we, in, in our, um, in our country, we are not likely to look, we don't like being told what to do. There's a lot of, there's a lot of that. And um and it, it, it's frustrating from a public health standpoint to try to explain to people that we're not infringing on your right, we're not infringing on your, you know, on all these things. What we're asking is, is to recognize this isn't about you, um, all about you. This is about all of us. And that there are things that all of us can do to help with this and prevent spread and get to a better place. And arguing about, you know, arguing about what was done previously with the vaccine, with the what's doing now, and arguing about, you know, this politic versus this doesn't help anything with this. It, it just doesn't. The virus doesn't care if you're black, white, brown, yellow, purple, whatever. The virus doesn't care if you're Republican or Democrat or independent or whatever you are. The virus just doesn't care. Um, and there are some logical things that, that we could do, but... Um, there it's it, it's it's frustrating so i i think it's whether it's the independent nature of our citizenry or whatever it is um i suspect that's probably a fair part of it the other thing is is that for certain countries like australia they close their borders you know and the thing yeah. is if you can close your borders um you can do pretty well now we get lambasted for closing our borders you know but the issue is the places that are doing really well they closed their borders in the places that if you tried to go down to the Caribbean, they've essentially got closed borders. You have to have a negative test 
before you go and show it when you get there. You have to show a negative, you have basically have to stay in a certain place for X amount of time. You have to get another negative test before they even let you go out and where you're at. So much more restrictive societies out there. It, the U.S. would not, we wouldn't, I, we wouldn't do that. Why we wouldn't do that, I think it would be the right thing to do, but that's just not the American way. <laughs> hey, thank, thanks for just talking about it. A um, uh, couple more questions. Uh, uh, if you're under the age of 50 and no other health risks, should, should going to the gym be worrisome? Again, anybody can pick up COVID. I'd still say make sure that you're wearing your mask, that you do it with a low volume of people, you're doing your social distancing because when we're seeing young symptomatic with asymptomatic spread, but that's usually, that's what they're seeing on college campuses is a lot of asymptomatic spread. Okay. Uh, can I still spread the virus if I've had the vaccine? So, the thing is, is it the virus, the vaccine does not give you the virus, but does the virus 100% protect you against the, the virus? Does the vaccine 100% protect you against getting the virus? The answer is no. So that is the reason why even after you get your vaccine, they are telling everybody you still need to do your mask and you still need to do your social distancing. We don't drop those precautions in addition to getting the vaccine because somebody can still get it. The expectation is people who have been vaccinated will have a much mi more minor course of disease, which again, when somebody is um, less sick, they may be less likely, you know, again, coughing, sneezing, et cetera, to spread it, but you still potentially could spread it. Okay. Um, I'll ask these last two kind of together. Oh, the other thing I should say, Mary Beth, is, is, um, is there a way, so, uh, we are recording this, and I'll ask you whether you're okay with us showing that after the fact. I think people are also asking about this slideshow. Is there any way to share this content after the I'll fact? I'll just send or, it to you. That's okay with you? Yeah, I don't care. If we put that, <laughs> okay, okay. Well, that's awesome. Put the references on there. So I, it's not proprietary. I put the references okay. on there. So, you know, it's, it's, it's where I got the stuff from, so. Okay. Very cool. Then we'll we'll put that on our website along with um, um, most of the content. Uh, so the last two questions right now in the chat are uh, how's they're kind of related. How safe do you think outside gatherings will be this summer, and how safe is it even right now to uh, do kind of normal things like go to the grocery store or Target? Well, I mean, again, I thought going to the going to the grocery store, going to Target, um, I I haven't had any problems with that. If again, if people are doing wearing your mask when you go, I, when you get your stuff home, you do your hand hygiene. I those things are all totally fine. As far as gatherings, it'll be interesting to see how it goes this summer. I don't expect the virus to disappear. Um, but I think more outside gatherings and people getting together will have more people who've been vaccinated. I'm, I'm looking forward to a much different summer than what we had this summer. Although I will say this summer was in many ways for me having been living this. Um, so 
right? This summer was, was, was actually wonderful from the aspect of what we dealt with in the spring and then what started happening again in the fall, just with our number of cases, the number of patients we were seeing, what we were dealing with. Um, it, was, it was exhausting. The summer was a nice break in terms of when our numbers got down in the hospital. I mean, we didn't get down to zero, but we at least felt we could breathe. Um, and then the numbers started to tick up again. Um, we are very fortunate here in the state of Wisconsin and, and, and that we did not have to go through what we see on the news of what happened. It has happened in Los Angeles, what's happened in um, some places, other places in California, what happened in New York City. I mean, we are, we are so fortunate that we did not have to, that we didn't get to that point. Mm -hmm. Wow, you're right, that, that is a, a blessing. So we're right about at noon. I know you had a few slides left to go. I think it's kind of up to you if you need to be done. Um, no, I can fly through the rest of them. I, I can talk fast. Okay. Well, uh, for everybody else, uh, feel free to stay on if you can. If you need to take off at this point, uh, do so. But I think Mary Beth would finish sharing her slides uh, if you want to stay on for that. All right, so just, just a few more. Um, so I just wanted to show this. Everybody keeps asking how this happens so quickly because the usual time it takes from a vaccine to be developed to when it goes into marketing is about 15 plus years. And this happened in like less, about a year or so. Um, and really, I, I put a lot of um, the, the public-private partnerships that came out, Operation Warp Speed, the way that the, uh, pharmaceutical companies worked on this, really was done in such a way that led to clinical development, but they did not skip the safety measures. So that's the one thing is people say, did they skip any you know, steps to make this safe? And, and none of us feel that they really, that they skipped steps to make it safe, but it was a much different platform and the way that they went about this. And I'm hoping it becomes a platform for the future for development of drugs. I mean, even the monoclonals went through this. I mean, to get those from development into people's, you know, to be able to treat people with those in less than a year is, is phenomenal. So um, I really do think that the beginning, I'm, I'm hoping Operation Warp Speed, even though the name is weird, um, will continue and that they will do something to build on that for, for future um, approach. Uh, treatment. What exactly is Operation Warp Speed? It's actually a partnership of all of these federal government agencies with um, some private partnerships. So there's this one group called ACTIVE um, through NIH. It's um, ACTIVE stands for Accelerated COVID Therapeutics Interventions and Vaccine Partnership. Through ACTIVE, we've been running a number of those trials here. Those are for vaccines, those are for monoclonals, and for other types of treatments. So Again, it is a really important development that they had, and I'm hoping it can be refined for the future. As far as the vaccine candidates, this is just what I wanted to point out. So again, our RNA are, are the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccines. The next ones that are coming out here are Johnson & Johnson and AstraZeneca. In Russia, you heard about, everybody talked about the Russian vaccine, that's Sputnik V, that's an uh, adenovirus vaccine, and CanSino is one that's in China. Um, there's also another one in China that is an inactivated one, but I haven't read much about that. Probably one of the next vaccines to come out here in the United States is this company Novavax is making the protein subunit. So again, we're, I'm very excited to hear what's gonna happen with this because having different vaccine um, types of, uh, having different options is going to be incredibly important. 
Um, this is just one that talks about efficacy of the different vaccines. So again, the Pfizer vaccine, the Moderna vaccine, and the AstraZeneca vaccine, and the differences in, in stability. But it brings up the question of what exactly do we mean by vaccine efficacy? So vaccine efficacy refers to vaccine protected, measured in randomized controlled trials, usually under optimal conditions. What it essentially translates into is that the greater the percentage reduction of illness in the vaccinated group, the greater the vaccine efficacy or effectiveness. So if you say the vaccine efficacy is 60%, which is usually about what influenza is, it means that there is a 60% reduction in the disease occurrence among the vaccinated group or a 60% reduction in the number of cases you would expect if they had not been vaccinated. So that's what vaccine efficacy means. The problem between efficacy and, and effectiveness, if we go back up here again, this is what the efficacy was done in clinical trials. Effectiveness is essentially what happens in the real world. So I am certain that the people who were involved in those trials were doing everything they could with regards to their social distancing, their hand washing, blah, 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 doing everything else. And again, that's not real world. That's not what everybody else who's getting the vaccine. We've had people here at Freighter who were talking about after their first vaccine, went out, you know, started going out and doing after their first shot. And then a number of employees who got COVID in between their first and their second shot. And I, I just like, are you that stupid? I mean, I'm sorry. You know, it's I, I'm sorry. And, and I don't, but it's it, no, that was, we did not tell you to do that. And it doesn't work after one shot just after that quick. But again, you, you need to take some time. So we, we had a number of people and it made us rip our hair out. <laughs> um, so I wanted to end with variants because variance is, is all in the news and the news basically is playing it up and wanting to scare the bejesus out of you. And I'm hoping that this kind of, kind of lowers that fear factor. Viruses change all the time. Whenever they replicate or make more of themselves, they mutate. So that's just the normal process. Influenza does it all the time. And so it mutates every time it makes more of itself. Um, SARS-CoV-2 does exactly the same time. So essentially, when the virus is replicating or making more of itself, we will see these variants. Some of the variants are what we refer to as more fit and then become predominant, or some of them just disappear because they've made them less fit. So these multiple variants are being documented and essentially what happens is that labs around the state, around all around the states, around the country will then send them in. We send our viruses, we send isolates to the state lab and the state essentially um, sequences them to see if there are variants in there, to see what a if there's a major change in it. So the three main ones you're gonna hear about in the media are this UK variant, the South African one and the, and the Brazilian one. The UK one, Essentially, the key thing about that one is it appears to spread more easily so that R0 is higher. So rather than that 2 to 2.5, it's probably around the 3 to 4 range. It may be associated with some increase. Originally, when they talked about it, they didn't say it had increased risk of death. Now the report's saying that, but the data needs to come out. We don't know yet. It was first detected in the United States in December of 2020. And about I, there are many states that have been detecting this one. So it's probably widely circulating here. What we do know is that convalescent plasma that um, from people who've been infected previously and also the monoclonal antibodies and the vaccine seems to develop an antibody which will work against this one, the UK variant. The South African variant, that's its name, B1.351. First cases were here in 2021. That one definitely seems to spread more easily, definitely looks like it may have um, worse um, 
morbidity, mortality, um, manifestation of disease with that one. But there's some reports saying right now it probably is um, it probably is covered by the vaccine. Um, but that I don't have enough information on. But we do know the Brazil variant. This one is the one that may have some mutations on it. So the vaccine or the monoclonal may not be as fully effective. It doesn't mean that they won't be effective at all, but they may not be fully effective. That's one of the beauties of the mRNA vaccines is that they can actually genetically engineer new mRNA that would then match this. So um, we have to wait and see what's going to happen with the Brazil variant. But again, we don't have all the data. It's again, it's not that the vaccines won't work. It's that they may not be as effective. So your vaccine efficacy, whereas you were seeing what they're reporting at that 90%, it may be lower. But in a regular flu year, vaccine efficacy for influenza is 40 to 60%. The variance, this just shows where we're seeing emergent variants. This is just from the CDC from yes, as of yesterday. So 434 cases of this UK, two of um, Brazil, and I mean, um, yeah, I, I'm, anyway, of the other two, there's just very, very few of those. And again, where are we seeing most of them? It was Florida and California, which was interesting. So that I think I, that was supposed to be gone. This I thought was a cool slide. This was actually from um, August of 2020. Uh, I pulled this up. This guy did this, which I thought was kind of cool, talking about pandemics compared. So essentially, if you look at the bubonic plague back in the 1300s, 200 million people were dead. If we look at the Spanish flu, 40 to 50 million people were dead. I mean, now essentially, we've got our coronavirus down here. This is back in August, and our numbers have increased greatly. So he's going to have to read the guy who did this uh, graphic is going to have to increase this. But again, we the world has been through this before. The world has been through pandemics of, of many, many different uh, types. And so we are though living in an age where science is so incredibly amazing that they we learn so much about the virus quickly. We can develop therapeutics much more quickly. We have much better ways to communicate people on how to prevent spread. So um, even though we're dealing with this dealing with a pandemic at this time, um, we have many, many more you know uh, tools in our toolbox. And last but not least, um, I'm thanking everybody for letting me do this today. So. Um, that's the last slide. <laughs> well, uh, I trust that you are seeing your own slide reflected back at you, Mary Beth. Uh, I know everybody who's been on this just has appreciated uh, your knowledge and kind of your passion for uh, caring for people and making sure that we help each other out and don't get sick. Um, so on behalf of everybody who's been able to listen in or people who will listen in the future on the podcast version of this thanks so much for spending an hour with us no and problem my pangolin says hi <laughs> and, and my little and my little coronavirus says hi so i do have a fun office you know even I, this is the thing is that even though I, I love what i do my office is filled with giant microbes with all of the different types of organisms that i've dealt with in the past I've got a bowl out here, so. <laughs> I, I was saying to Mary Beth, we might have to have her in to do a children's message at some point because she's got all these great props for it. Anyhow, when we when we pray for the people who give care, you're one of them, and why don't I close this with a prayer and then we will uh, head off into life ahead. Uh, dear God, thank you so very much for Mary Beth and all the people like her who research and uh, treat and work to end this disease and so many others uh, 
keep them safe and keep them energized for the task. Uh, help the rest of us work really hard to protect each other. And we give you thanks uh, for each day that we're given and pray that we would use it wisely and well uh, for your world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. I'll send the email. I will send the slides to you. Awesome. All right. Thank you so much, Mary Beth. And thanks to everybody for being on the call today. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us today for Belief Beat. Um, thank you so much to Mary Beth Graham for having been our guest at our forum on January 31st and to all of you for listening. Uh, let's do a good job of taking care of each other, praying for each other, and giving thanks for uh, people like Mary Beth and so many others uh, who care for others uh, who have this disease and who are working to end it, uh, both through treatment and through the vaccination program. Uh, an important thing for us to hold in prayer. And I think that's where I'll end this podcast. Gracious God, uh, bless our world that uh, this disease might be brought to an end. May we be really good to each other in the interim and may the various vaccines be distributed effectively and be a source of healing for all the world. In your good name and ways we pray, amen. Thanks everybody for being a part of Belief Beat this week. We'll talk to you again soon. Bye.